everyone. We also uh, we want to thank or welcome, I should say, our live community um, that's online. The first time we're doing it live online, so I uh, hope it works out for you guys at home. Uh, we love you guys uh, as well. It's good to be gathered together inside uh, and where it's warm, uh, and so I'm, I'm pleased to be here this morning. Uh, I know Will prayed earlier, but I just want to pray. A lot going on in our world uh, this week, yeah? You've heard? Uh, you probably have. Father, we pray for peace, Lord, in our hearts. And Lord, we know that you're sovereign and that you're good. And Lord, when, uh, when things go down and we're, they cause uncertainty in our hearts, or even as we lead up to events which potentially might cause uncertainty in our hearts, we rest in your sovereignty and in your goodness. And Father, we pray that uh, you would use us to be a light in a dark and increasingly darkening world, that people might see, Lord, the peace that is ours in Christ Jesus and be drawn. And Lord, that you'd give us an opportunity then uh, to open up our mouth for your glory, to point people to Christ. Father, bless us as we study your word. We thank you for the truth of it. Lord, we thank you for the privilege of it. Father, we're grateful for uh, the freedom to be able to sit under it together. Lord, uh, not just during this time of COVID, but in this nation and the religious freedom that we enjoy. Lord, we thank you for those men and women that work so hard through the millennia to preserve the word that each of us would have our own copy to consider, Lord. You've been uh, gracious to us in ways that we're not really even aware of. And we acknowledge that, we appreciate it. And so, Lord, as Josh prayed and as he often prays, Lord, we give our full attention to hear from you what you have from your God-inspired word, uh, from your inspired word for our hearts. So bless this time, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're in the book of Joshua again, so go ahead and turn to the book of Joshua, start finding it in your Bibles. Excuse me, we're in the book of Jonah this morning. We're in Joshua on Wednesday nights, um, and I do need to establish a new rule, no books that begin with the same names at the two studies. Um, so we're in the book of Jonah, and we're, we're just about to finish up the last verse of chapter 2. We did this actually last week as well where we started our study with the last verse of chapter 1. Today, I promise we will finish all of chapter 3. Uh, I don't know why we did that the last two weeks, but it just sort of turned out that way. Now, notice the last verse of chapter 2. It says, And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Now, if you weren't with us, and you haven't read the book of Jonah, you're probably thinking, what? Uh, vomit and a human and coming out of a fish and all these sorts of things. And we, we spent our time digging into that, um, can, and that's what it means, um, quite frankly. Um, so I, I don't have any, like, secret for, well, what it really means is this. That's what it means. Jonah was swallowed up by this fish. Now let me go back and let me give you a little bit of a context here for those especially that haven't been with us. Our study began by taking notice of the way that God reached out, he called to a prophet of his, a man by the name of Jonah. This wouldn't be the first time that Jonah prophesied, actually. We see in uh, 1st, 2nd Kings, one of those two, that he was a known prophet that had spoken the word of the Lord in times past and, 
and the word of the Lord came to be um, during those particular times. And yet here God calls to him again. Maybe it's the second time, maybe it's the fifth time that he's called to him, I don't know. But God calls to him again, and this time he tells him he wants to leave the confines of the nation of Israel and the people of Israel, the Jewish people, and he wants them to go to a foreign land. And that foreign land is going to be the capital city of the Assyrian Empire, the city of Nineveh. If you look at Jonah chapter 1, verse 1, it says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Now, as we learn, Jonah had no desire to follow the Lord in this commissioning. Uh, he had no desire to be obedient to the Lord. And so he get, goes down to the port city of Joppa, which was probably about 80 to 100 miles from where he lived. That seems like a hassle. Just do what you're told. You're going 100 miles out of the way. Goes 80, 100 miles out of the way, gets on a ship, and he begins to sail to essentially the end of the world, as far as he knew to the edge of the Mediterranean Sea where it, it dumps into the Atlantic Ocean, to a, a port city that was called Tarshish, and today what we would refer to as Spain um, there. And he's trying to go as far away as he possibly could because he doesn't want to obey what the Lord call, called him to do. He had no intention to do what the Lord called him to do. Jonah chapter 4, which we'll get to next week, but it actually tells us why. Look at Jonah 4 verse 2. It says, that is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, because I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and that you relent from disaster. Jonah did not want to do what God had asked him to do because he knew that if he went and preached judgment was coming on that, that group of people, and if that group of people responded by repenting, he knew that God would forgive them. And as I said, Jonah had determined that those people, they were not worthy of forgiveness. They were not worthy of God's mercy. And so Jonah decided to do his own thing. And he went his own direction. He went as far away from the city of Nineveh as he possibly could. He went to the city of Tarshish. Now, God was not through with Jonah. God had a work that he wanted to get done in the lives of the people of Nineveh, but I think this is important for us to consider as well. God had a work that he wanted to get done in Jonah's life too. And so whereas Jonah said, you know what, I'm done. I'm going to do what I want to do. I don't care what God has to say. Even I don't even care what the consequences are. If I die, I die. At least I don't have to do what I don't want to do. God was not through with Jonah. And God was going to work, and God was going to work, and God was going to work until God brought Jonah to the place where Jonah wanted to do what God wanted him to do. Not reluctantly, not sort of in this, all right, God, I'll do it. But where Jonah genuinely wanted to do what God wanted him to do. And as I've been saying here, God has a way of changing us to bring our desires in line with his desires. And sometimes it's a painful process to do that. Those of you that have been believers for a little while, would you agree? It's, sometimes it's a painful process. And for Jonah, it involved a storm. It involved essentially the wrath of the, the other uh, sailors, the mariners on that boat. It involved being thrown out into the middle of the Mediterranean Sea, left for dead essentially. And it involved being swallowed up by a great fish, a whale we'll call it, and living with inside of that fish for three days. And it, that's chapter 2. And in chapter 2, we see this whole learning process 
that Jonah, I think I just said Joshua, I'm sorry, that Jonah had to go through. This whole learning process where eventually Jonah comes to the place where he, where he had once been longing for separation from God, to leave the presence of God, and now he's desperate for the presence of God. He realized that which he had been longing for, he doesn't want at all. And having no uh, sense, I'm going to get out of this fish someday and it's going to be a cool book that's written about me, having no sense of what his future held, he cried out to God. And he said, please, take me out of this pit. Not the fish. Take me out of this pit of being outside of your presence. I cannot live without your presence. And he cries to the Lord, and some of the most wonderful words of the book, it says, the Lord heard his prayer. What mercy, amen? That God would hear the prayer of this sinner. That God would hear the prayer of this disobedient and rebellious prophet. The scripture says, the Lord heard his prayer. And then again, as we read in verse chapter 2, verse 10, it says, And the Lord spoke to the fish, and the fish vomited Jonah out. Now we commonly, or at least I do, commonly have this idea that the fish vomited Jonah out into Nineveh. And he comes out of the fish, and he walks into the city. Nineveh was about 500 miles away from the coastline of the Mediterranean Sea. So that was some serious projectile vomit uh, on the part of our friend here. I know some of you haven't had breakfast yet, um, nor will you. Uh, It's more probable Jonah got, well, he did. He got vomited out on the coast, and then he began to trek. And see, there's something about that that I appreciate, because obedience requires perseverance. And so I'm all committed. I'm going to be obedient now. But Jonah had to remain obedient for 500 miles as he marched from the coast to the city of Nineveh. And that's what he'll do. He'll trek to the city of Nineveh and he'll begin to preach when he gets there. An important point for us to consider. Another important point for us to consider, Jonah was thrown off of the ship somewhere out in the middle of the Mediterranean. Probably not smack dab in the middle. But they didn't throw him off the ship at the coast because they had been trying to get back to the coast, you recall. Remember this? Jonas, they said, what should we do to you in order to appease the wrath of your God? Jonas said, throw me off the ship and we'll be fine. And they're like, no, we're not doing that. We're gonna... And so they rode harder and harder and harder to get back to land. And then they're going nowhere, probably going further out to sea. So finally they say, Lord, forgive us. And they throw Jonah overboard there. So Jonah's out in the middle of the body of water, the Mediterranean, somewhere miles off of the coast. And yet the fish swallows him up and vomits him up where? On the coast, where God wanted to bring him. And so I have no doubt, and we read it actually, so I know for sure. In chapter 2, part of Jonah's prayer is that he had been abandoned by the Lord. The Lord was no longer with him, doesn't want him and all this stuff. I'm crying out from this pit. But Jonah wasn't abandoned by the Lord, even as he was in the midst of that horrifying trial of being inside of the fish. Because the fish was moving exactly to where God wanted to bring him. And so some of us, we do go through trials that, if you will, are our own fault. We go through storms that we brought on ourselves. Now again, not all of life's difficulties are because of your personal sin. All of life's difficulties are because of sin, in general, in the world in which we live. And in some cases, it's because of people in your life 
that have done things to you or caused things to happen in your particular life. And so those storms are caused by somebody's sin, but not necessarily your sin. But what we learn from the book of Jonah is some of life's difficulties that we experience are because of sin in our life. And so Jonah is in this fish because of sin in his life. He's going through this storm because of sin in his life, but God is using it. And God is still accomplishing his purpose, and he's bringing Jonah from the middle of the Mediterranean inside of this difficult life experience, the fish, and he's dumping him out there on the coast. God's accomplishing his purposes. I would say this to you. If you are in a difficult spell of your life, you're in a storm, and you recognize, you know what, this is probably because of my own sin that I'm here right now dealing with this particular thing. See where the Lord is bringing you. And you may not ever discover it until you get dumped out onto the coast. And so Jonah is going in this particular direction. The prayer that I would pray in that circumstance is, Lord, what do you have for me in this? What do you want to teach me through this experience? Jonah was feeling forsaken and forgotten. Jonah was thinking, he says it, that his life was over. And yet the whale is accomplishing the purpose of God. In three days, Jonah's going to be, so to speak, resurrected from the dead. Jesus sort of made that comparison. And he's going to come back to life, if you will. And God is going to give Jonah a second chance to do that which he was calling him to do. Chapter 3, it begins this way. It says, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. And so Jonah arose and he went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, and going a day's journey, he called out, saying, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Notice how chapter 3 begins. It begins with the wonderful words, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, or a second time. Now certainly I think we would all agree that Jonah did not deserve to have the word of the Lord come to him a second time. And yet, wonderfully, God brings the word to Jonah a second time. And so in our study of the book of Jonah, we have already been spending quite a bit of our time considering the mercy of God. The mercy of God in not giving Jonah and not giving others, whether it be the people of Nineveh or be the pagan mariners on the ship, what they deserved. Here, in chapter 3, we see the grace of God. So we've seen the mercy of God. Now we see the grace of God in giving something to Jonah that he doesn't deserve. So there's a slight difference between mercy and grace, between God's mercy and God's grace. God's mercy is when he does not give us what we deserve. And thank God for that, amen? God's grace is when he gives us what we don't deserve. God didn't have to come to Jonah a second time. God didn't have to come to Jonah and give him a second chance, and yet he chose to do so. That is God's grace. And any of us that have walked with the Lord, or perhaps even have sought to serve the Lord in some way in our lives, we have come to learn that our God is a God of second chances, and third chances, and fourth chances, and this guy, holy moly, many, many chances. And let me tell you, it's a good thing that he is, amen? Because if he were not, each one of us would be cast off to the side. You know, I'll still let you come to heaven, 
but you've proven yourself unworthy to serve me and put off on the side. And nobody would be serving the Lord or a bunch of whole new Christians that serve him for a day. God is the God of second chances, third chances, fourth chances, and so on. And so though Jonah did everything he could to resist the first call of the Lord, after Jonah repents, the Lord comes to him a second time. And he commissions him once more with the exact same commission he gave him the first time. That's an example of God's pure grace. Again, our God is the God of second chances. You remember Abraham in the Old Testament, who on multiple occasions failed the Lord. Interesting, on some occasions with the exact same huge blunder. She's not my wife, she's my sister. No, I'm not, you know, this kind of thing. We're more than sisters, I'll tell you that. And yet he does it on two different occasions. Abraham failed the Lord on multiple occasions, and yet the Lord continued to reach out to him, to bring Abraham to the place of repentance, and then commissioned him once more to the task that he had given him. Moses failed the Lord on multiple occasions. David failed the Lord, and so did Peter, and so did Mark. And so did all of the other disciples. And in each one of those cases, the Lord dealt with their failures, brought restoration, and then he sends them out once more to accomplish his purposes. That's the testimony of Scripture. And so that should be your testimony as well. That's my testimony. That we struggle, we try to do the best we can from the Lord, we get in the flesh, we mess up, we fail. The Lord deals with us Conviction brings restoration and says, now get out there and try again. How awesome. Amen? All right, you're not excited. This lady is. I appreciate her. All right. That's great news. Giving individuals a second chance is God's usual mode of operation. And in each one of the instances that I shared, David, Abraham, Moses, and so on and so forth, God used them after their mistakes. The Lord will not cast off those that are his true children. He doesn't disown them. He disciplines them. You like that? This lady, she's got issues. All right. He disciplines them, but he doesn't disown them. Hebrews chapter 12 says, For the Lord disciplines the one that he loves, and the Lord chastises everyone, every son whom he receives. And again, remember at the root of the word discipline is the word disciple, which is the word teach. And so after we have learned the lesson that God would have for us through that difficult experience for Jonah the fish, God will send us forth to be used in spite of our previous failings. Again, I said earlier, Jonah had the exact same commissioning. Look at chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. It says, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call call out against it the message that I tell you. That's Jonah chapter 3. That's the second commissioning. Let's go back to chapter 1 for a moment. Chapter 1, verse 1 says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for the evil has come up against me. The exact same commissioning. And so let's look at Jonah here, from the, just from, if you will, a logical perspective. Jonah went through a whole lot of running, and a whole lot of pain to end up right back in the exact same spot that he was before all these events went down. And again, if we are truly the Lord's, we can try 
and run from him. But sooner or later, he's going to catch up with us and he's going to bring us to the place where we'll have to face the very thing that we were running away from. And again, God will make us do, uh, he will not make us do anything against our will, but he does have a way of changing our will to bring it into line with his thinking. And that's what, Jonah, that's what happened in the life of Jonah, but again, with a whole lot of pain in between. And so Jonah, having learned the lesson of both the futility and the counterproductivity of resisting the will of the Lord, Jonah this time obeys the call of the Lord. It tells us in Jonah chapter 3, verse 3, so Jonah arose and he went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. And he went to Nineveh, this time much better prepared to preach the message of repentance. And I say that because he himself recently came to experience the need for repentance, his own desperate need. Prior to this, Jonah's message, if he would have said anything at all to the people of Nineveh, it would have been something like this, you people need to get your act together with the implication that I have my act together. If he would have said anything at all, it would have been something to that effect. But now, having just become intimately aware of the fact that he himself was nowhere near having his act together, Jonah will instead, he will point people, not to him, but to the Lord and to the Lord's mercy. Jonah's message, now delivered from the heart, would be for the people of Nineveh to cry out to the Lord for his mercy. Being a repentant sinner doesn't disqualify Jonah. I think this is important for us to understand. Being a repentant sinner doesn't disqualify us from preaching a message of repentance. In many ways, it makes us, our preaching, even more effective. And Jonah is perhaps the most effective preacher in the history of the world, as we'll see in a few verses. Continuing on in chapter 3, it says, So Jonah arose, and he went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. And Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, saying, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast, and they put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Sackcloth is sort of like a burlap bag, if you can picture that. It's very uncomfortable. It was a symbol of mourning and repentance that the people would put on there. And so you have that context with that particular verse. Jonah obeys God's call this second time, and God honors that obedience with an outpouring of his power in the lives of the people of Nineveh. Verse 5 tells us that the response of the people of Nineveh to Jonah's preaching, you'll see it there in verse 5, was that the people believed God. The people believed God. Notice that. Not, it doesn't say that the people believed in God. That in and of itself won't accomplish anything. In the New Testament, we learn that even the demons believe in God. That's no big deal. Of course they believe in God. God's real. Here it says that the people believed God. That is, they believed the word of the Lord that had been delivered to them through his servant Jonah. And what was the word of the Lord? Jonah preached that in 40 days, judgment was going to come and Nineveh would be overthrown. 
I've been saying in our study of the book of Jonah, there's only eight recorded words in the English language of Jonah's message to the people. Those are the eight recorded words. It's five words in the Hebrew language. Now, it's possible. It's probably even probable. Can it be probably probable? Uh, It's possible or probable that Jonah said more to the people than the eight words that are recorded for us. But these are the eight words. This is the heart of his message. This is where he began. In 40 days' time, the city of Nineveh will be overthrown. God's going to bring judgment. Now, perhaps the people cried back out, what should we do? And Jonah continued to go on there. Based on the response of the people, I think we can draw that conclusion safely, that Jonah spoke more than these eight words that are recorded for us. Because again, we see that Jonah's audience, they heard the word of the Lord, they believed the word of the Lord, And then in response to the word of the Lord, they repented. They repented of their sin, and they did so, as it says in verse 5, with fasting. And so whether Jonah spoke more words than the eight recorded for us, or he didn't, even if Jonah did say something in addition to the eight words, what we have recorded for us is this fact that we can take away, that Jonah preached a clear and simple message to the people of Nineveh. I think sometimes we think, as we speak with others about the things of God, I think sometimes we have a tendency to think that we have to have and give all of the answers to all of the arguments if we're ever going to be effective. The reality is, as we see here, Jonah preached a simple, and by simple I mean a straightforward, just that in that sense, a straightforward message of God's coming judgment and the result was what might be referred to as the greatest revival in human history. The largest city in the world responded. The entire city, it says, from the greatest of them to the least of them, repented of their sin. Jonah preaches a simple message which God greatly blesses because, again, these were truly God's words and not the clever words of a mere man. Jonah declared that unless the people repented, the city would be overthrown. Same word that is used to describe the overthrowing of Sodom and Gomorrah in the book of Genesis, chapter 19. Jonah's prophecy was what we would call a conditional prophecy, and it was based upon the response of the hearer. And so if the city repented, then God would relent. If the city ignored Jonah's message, and they continued in their sin, then God would bring the, ju- the judgment of which Jonah was preaching. Much to Jonah's consternation, as we'll see in the next chapter, Nineveh responded. Nineveh repented. Again, look at verse 5. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast. They put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. And it says, The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and he sat in his ashes. The whole city repented, including the king of Nineveh, as demonstrated by these things we saw, rising off of his throne, humility, removing his royal robe, again, humility, covering himself with sackcloth, a sign of repentance, and then sitting in these ashes, a sign of mourning. The word reaches the king, and he too repents. He's truly moved. And the king orders the entire city to call out mightily to God to turn from their evil way and to seek the Lord for his mercy. 
Verse 7 says, He issued a proclamation, published it throughout the city by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Everybody's fasting. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hand. For who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Now the word repentance is not used. The title of our sermon today is Biblical Repentance. And the word repentance is not used in the book of Jonah. But it's clear that's what's going on in the book of Jonah. Jonah repented of his sin. These folks here are now repenting of their sin. And I want to look a little bit at this idea of repentance. I think it's important for us to understand. We see here, first off, that the people believed God. Now, God used Jonah. But it wasn't Jonah that they entrusted themselves to. It was the Lord that they entrusted themselves to. And it's easy for us to see. Now, the people of Nineveh, the Assyrian Empire, they, they believed in many gods, but their high deity was the fish god, essentially. And so it's easy for, for me to understand how a guy that was just inside of a fish for three days and all of the stuff that does to you physically comes out and begins to preach to people why that people would respond. But again, what we see here is it doesn't say they believe Jonah or because of Jonah's grand experience, it says they believed God. First sign of repentance, true faith, true revival, it doesn't rest in a messenger, but it rests in God who gives the message, which he works through a messenger oftentimes. But the faith was in the Lord. Any real revival or repentance will begin with the faithful preaching and the faithful hearing of God's holy word just as it was in the city of Nineveh. That's the first thing we see about true repentance, biblical repentance. Secondly, true repentance has to be without excuses. And so notice this in verse 8 about the Ninevites, that they acknowledge that what God called sin was indeed sin. The, the king there, he says, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in your hands. And so there's no minimizing what it was. It's acknowledging that what God calls sin and is going to be judged is indeed sin. We either sin. When we come to repentance, we either sinned or we didn't sin. And if we sinned, then there's no excuse. And we don't attempt to make any in our prayer of repentance. And if we didn't sin, then there's no need to repent at all. So true repentance, it has to be devoid of any excuse that will either attempt to minimize the sin, minimize what was done, or shift blame to another person. God, I'm really sorry that I did that, but I wouldn't have done it if she didn't push. That's minimizing sin. That's not true repentance. True repentance has to be devoid of any excuse. True repentance agrees with God that what he calls sin is indeed sin and that we are guilty before him because of our willingness to previously embrace that particular sin. So that's the second idea of true repentance. Thirdly, we're given insight into the truth of what true repentance, biblical repentance is, by the fact that they repent not in some vague or uncertain manner, 
but from a defined, they repent of a defined and specific sin. Again, look at verse 8, where it says, let us turn from our evil way and from the violence that is in our hands. That's the specific sin that they're repenting of here. The people of Nineveh are seen turning from that specific sin. And so theirs was not a prayer that goes something like this. Dear God, if there is something that I have done wrong, I ask that you forgive me of that sin. That's a vague sin that doesn't really specifically deal with what God's laying upon their heart. And so rather what these folks here do, they name what it is that they have done wrong. They agree with God that such behavior was indeed wrong. Repentance, if it's going to truly be blessed by the Lord, it can't be vague, it can't be nonspecific, because those types of repentance, that type of repentance, doesn't really acknowledge sin. You remember when David said, search me, O God, and know my heart, and find if there's any a wayward way that is within me. You see, David didn't want to come to his time of prayer and be, Lord, just do what you need to do in me. He wanted to know the areas of sin that even were kind of hidden from him, that God would bring conviction about those areas so that he could specifically repent of those particular areas. When we repent, we have to do so specifically. Call it sin. Don't make any excuses, and so on. And fourthly, this is also in verse 8. There's a whole lot in verse 8. And it's this, that the people didn't just feel sorry for their sin, or more specifically, the potential consequences of their sin. The sorrow for their sin that the people of Nineveh were, were experiencing, notice in verse 8, it was accompanied by a turning from that sin. So again, notice the king's words. He says, let everyone turn from his evil way way, and from the violence that is in his hands. And so true repentance, the fourth point, it always must be, it must always be more than sorrow for our sin or for the consequences that our sin has brought. There must always be an accompanying turning from that sin. True repentance will always be followed by a change of direction in our lives as well. The Apostle Paul digs into this in the New Testament. 2 Corinthians, Paul, he speaks of uh, what he calls godly grief, and he compares it with worldly grief. If you have an older version, godly sorrow with worldly sorrow. The Apostle, he said this, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in this matter. Now, I know we're not studying the book of 1 Corinthians, but there's an important context to those verses. The context of those particular verses here in 2 Corinthians is Corinthians is the sin that Paul called out in the lives of the people of Corinth in the first book of Corinthians. And so the first book, 1 Corinthians we call it, Paul pointed out these particular areas of sin that needed to be dealt with in this church. Here now in 2 Corinthians, he's commenting on the fact that they dealt with their sin. They repented of their sin, just like the people of Nineveh did. 
And again, Paul says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. He commends them for the type of grief, the type of sorrow, the type of repentance that they have demonstrated. And he contrasts godly grief and worldly grief. Both godly grief and worldly grief create a sense of sorrow and regret inside of a person. Both individuals are left with a sense of wishing, man, I wish I had never done that particular thing because they're now experiencing a grief or a sorrow over that particular thing. The difference between godly grief and worldly grief, as Paul says in verse 10, is godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Look at the second half of verse 10. Worldly grief produces death. Worldly grief is the type of grief that thinks, man, I wish I never did that thing because if I hadn't, I wouldn't have to experience these consequences right now. You'll notice there's no acknowledging that that particular thing was wrong. There's no agreeing with God that what he calls sin is actually sin. There's no acknowledgement that sin brings judgment unless God shows his mercy to us. And since there are none of those things, all that the person is left with is a bad feeling through the whole process, what Paul calls shame. That sort of repentance results in nothing but death. We see, though, the people of Nineveh, just like the people of Corinth there, they heard the word of God, and then they responded to the word of God. And the king instructs the entire city to mourn their sin. And then he casts the fate of the city into the hands of the Lord. You look at verse 9. He says, who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. This king places all of his hope in the Lord that maybe, just maybe, the Lord will turn and relent and that he and his people will not perish, which, as we see in verse 10, is exactly what the Lord ends up doing. Verse 10 says, When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. This is perhaps the high point of the book of Jonah. God sees the people of Nineveh. He sees their response to Jonah's preaching and how they turn from their evil ways, and God has compassion on them. God relents of the disaster that he said he would do to them. God honors their repentance, even though their past sin was such that it initially warranted the pouring out of his judgment upon them. God relents of his judgment because of their repentance. Despite the magnitude of their guilt, God's willing to show them mercy when they seek him for his mercy which is exactly what Jonah suspected that God would do. Now, sadly, a few generations later, about 150 years later, the Assyrian Empire, they would return once more to their wicked ways. And sadly, as I said, about 150 years later, the unrepentant, that new generation of unrepentant Ninevites, they experienced the judgment of God upon their sin. One day we'll get to it. That's recorded for us in the book of Nahum one of the minor prophet books. They had returned once more to their wickedness. A new generation of Ninevites, Assyrians, returned. But here, in the context of the book of Jonah, God in his mercy delays 
that judgment. And he does so in response to the people of Nineveh. He gives them a 150-year reprieve, so to speak. I said a few moments ago that Nineveh's repentance is the high point of the book. God has just spared a Gentile city for more than a century because of her immediate repentance in response to the preaching of one of his prophets. This is not a a group of Jewish people that knew God and kind of drifted a little bit out of the way. This was a pagan people that did pagan things as far from God as possibly could be. And yet when they cry to God for repentance, he responds, in repentance, he responds. Romans chapter 3, verse 29, it says, Is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Most of us in this room are almost certainly Gentiles. We're not of Jewish descent, and yet God in his mercy has grafted us into the family of God. We are the Ninevites. We are the ones that deserved God's judgment. And yet in his grace and his mercy, he reaches out. Is God the God of the Jews only? No. He's the God of you and I. And he sent forth his son on our behalf. The book of Jonah is a wonderful example of that. A group of people not in relationship with the God of Israel who would not have thought of him as their God or sought him were brought into submission to him. The Lord knew them even though they didn't know him. And he extended his mercy that would both cause him to repent, cause him to respond, and then he would respond when they did repent. I think it's so important for us as Christians to receive the message of Jonah chapter 3. And I have to imagine, I, I don't imagine, I know each of us in this room, we know people like the Ninevites that desperately are in need of the mercy of God. So we know people that are completely undeserving of the mercy of the Lord. And so as one that has have received God's mercy, if you're a Christian here today, and you have already received God's mercy, may I encourage you, be a bearer of God's mercy. Go in obedience to God's command. Well, God didn't specifically call me. He did. We call it the Great Commission. Go ye now into all the world and make disciples of all nations, teaching them that they may know, that they may understand. I added that part. That they may know and understand. Go in obedience to God's command Tell others both of their sin, I have to be honest with people, and the judgment that sin warrants. But also, because sometimes Christians, we love to preach about sin. We love to call other people out. We love to judge other people, or at least that's how it comes off. But when you communicate the message of God's coming judgment on sin, make sure you don't leave out the good news that the grace of God has appeared to us in the person of his son, that he went to a cross to pay the penalty that our sin deserves. Share that message. And I want to encourage you, take a moment. And even now, as I continue to finish up and wrap up, think about some people in your life that are desperately in need of that message. Think of the worst possible person that you can think of and make a plan to tell that person about the love of Jesus Christ and that even they can be forgiven of their sin. Now, most of us here, we're believers. Sunday morning, we gather as a body of believers. Most of us here, we are believers. 
But there are some that may not be believers here. And I get that. I understand that. I'm grateful that you're here. And I'm praying that God will open up his word to your heart. And maybe today as you've been sitting here and you've been sort of like putting yourself in the shoes of some of the people in this story, you say, I'm not the preacher. I'm the one that needed to be preached to. I'm the one who is about to experience the judgment of God. If that describes you, then I want to encourage you this. Number one, acknowledge that sin, your sin, alienates you from God. Confess that sin. Whatever it is that God lays on your heart as being uh, alienated from him, distinct from him, not pleasing to him, acknowledge that and confess that area. And then before you leave here this morning, purpose in your heart that you're going to turn from that area of sin and you're going to walk in obedience to however it is the Lord might lead. That's biblical repentance. And that's the sort of repentance the Lord responds to, that he receives, and that he cleanses. Amen? And so if God's speaking to your heart this morning, I just want to encourage you, listen. Listen to his leading and respond. And if that does describe you, come on up afterwards. I'd love to talk with you a little bit further. I'd love to help you kind of get started. What's your next step? What's that going to look like tomorrow morning after what you have done this morning? And the Lord will bless you. Amen? Let me pray for us. Father, you know those in the room that are not yet right with you. Lord, you, you're speaking into the deep places of their heart right now, and they're wrestling with that. They didn't expect, perhaps, to come in this morning and to have you speak into the deep places of the heart. And I guarantee you the people of Nineveh didn't expect that a guy would come walking into their city and begin preaching this message of truth, and yet they heard it. And so, Father, I pray for those that are with us today that don't yet know Christ, and yet they're hearing your voice loud and clear in the deep places of their heart. Lord, I ask that they would respond. Lord, that you would open up their heart to see they can run to Jesus Christ and that he's ready and he's quick to forgive. And Lord, we pray for the miracle of salvation this morning to be born in the hearts of some in this room, some that are watching on TV. Father, we pray for the rest of us in this room that have received your grace and your mercy at a previous time in our lives. Lord, we look at Jonah he had received it a long time ago, but he needed to receive it again. And because he did, it changed him. Father, I pray for us longer-time Christians. Lord, that you would make us desperate afresh for your mercy. Not so much because we wandered off and got ourselves into trouble. Just because you touch our heart once again in a fresh way. And that we would once more fall in love with your mercy. How good and how kind and how gentle and how sweet you are. And give us a heart for the lost. Enlarge all of our hearts for the lost. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.